I can remember when new women came into the gallery giving them a list of MPs where it was very ill-advised to either go to dinner with them alone or go to their offices alone. It was just advice you gave to other women. Where the hell did we put up with it? I don't know. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I am very privileged today to have the one and only Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, with me here at Short Black. G'day and welcome. Welcome to me. Welcome to you. Now, you know, I met you more than three decades ago. Basically, I was starting out my journalism career. I was green as. And, you know, you were well on your way. Now you're editor of The Guardian. When you look back, did you ever aspire to be editor? Did you think it was somewhere you might end up? No, no, not at all. I aspired to be a political editor of a major news organisation. I probably aspired to be political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And I found myself in exactly that job. I was, well, I was political, chief political correspondent when The Guardian came along and I decided to jump to The Guardian in the interests of creating a new news platform in Australia. And then about two years after we started The Guardian, the second editor, British appointed editor, left. So the first one was Catherine Viner, who's now the global editor-in-chief of The Guardian. And then there was another wonderful British woman. And they were looking for another editor. And it was at that point where we were starting to succeed, but we really needed to get bigger quickly. And I thought, this is an enterprise I really want to succeed. And it really needs an Australian to be leading it. And it needs someone who understands The Guardian, who's already in it, if you like. It would be very difficult to appoint someone from outside. And so I thought, I looked around and thought, yep, I guess it better be me. <laughs> so in, in short, to answer your question, Sandra, no, I never aspired to it. It was never something that I thought that I would do. I find it surprisingly rewarding now that I am doing it, but it's rewarding because of what we're creating. The transition from being a journalist then to an editor means that you've got to manage the business model. How long did it take you to get your head around that side of the business? You're assuming that I've entirely got my head around it now. <laughs> no, it was a huge learning curve. I mean, it was a huge learning curve. I do always, I always thought it was strange that in media, the qualities that make a great journalist, like, you know, sort of getting into a story on your own, being super competitive, and the qualities that make a really great leader being very collegiate were not necessarily the same qualities. And yet journalists were often promoted to be editors. And then I found myself taking that same trajectory. So there was the whole learning how to be a leader, which is challenging and quite different, a whole set of different skills, a whole set of different ways of thinking about things, of, of achieving what you want to achieve. And then there was learning the commercial side of the business and understanding that. And because The Guardian's an editorially run organisation, I run the business with the managing director. So we have a managing director who at the moment is a terrific fellow called Dan Stinton, but he and I run the business together. So that means I've got to be across a whole lot of things that I'd never been across before. And early on, when I first became editor, we were at quite a challenging time. It was when advertising revenue just started to really shrink as Google and Facebook were eating up all of the ad revenue. We were still quite small. Everyone was saying, you know, you have to go behind a paywall. Globally, The Guardian took the decision that we were going to go to this sort of reader revenue model, which is asking people to pay us even though they don't have to and they can get our content for free. 
many of our competitors thought that was a completely crazy model. It was sort of my job to launch that model in Australia, to launch that ask. That involved me asking people for money. I'd never done that before. It felt really awkward at first. But I do think it's a great model. Like I think it's really terrific that our, um, what we do is accessible to everybody. And it turns out it's a really successful model. So well over half our revenue, more like 60 or 70% of our revenue is now directly from readers rather than from advertising. So, you know, that was another big learning curve. So yeah, it was, it was difficult. And it's still something that I have to really work on to understand and think about. You know, we've just gone through another big expansion and suddenly the organisation's, you know, much bigger. And I have to really now start to think about structure and... You've got to read a balance sheet. Well, I'd have to read a balance sheet, all of that. I have to think about how we work with the UK. We have, you know, we have to do budget meetings. There's lots of, lots of new things. But so far, very successful. About 7 million readers a month? Yes, between 6 and 8 million readers most months. It spiked a bit well over that during COVID, yeah, and profitable for the last four years. You referred before to the learning curves of leadership. Most of the women I interview here in Short Black always talk about suffering the imposter syndrome. Did you? Probably a bit, yeah. It was when I had to do public events that were talking about, well, probably events like this, talking about myself or talking about the business. I was used to talking about subject matter that I was an absolute goddamn expert on. And I could tell you, you know, who was going to win what seat in the election or, you know, what policy meant and whether it made sense or not. But having to talk in this very different way felt awkward and unnatural for a time. So yeah, I guess I did a bit. You feel like you've overcome it? Not entirely. Not entirely. Mostly, yeah, but not entirely. Yeah. I think we never really lose it because there's some part of us that just occasionally says, I might be found out. Well, I think I, I most often am aware of it when I am in a situation or on a podium or something with male editor colleagues, other editors. And I sort of think, wow, you know, you're saying that with such certainty and such complete confidence. And I know it's not 100% right, and I can see all the sort of, you know, issues in your argument, but you are, you are presenting that like, you know, you're the king of the universe. And I do at those points think, why can't I be more like that? You know, I should be more queen of the universe. One of our revered feminists in Australia is Wendy McCarthy, and she often talks about say yes first and work it out later. Do you have more empathy now in that journey when you see other women striving for their place and feeling like they're just really struggling in owning their space and voice? So one of the things I enjoy most in my role now is that there's a really fabulous crop of women, sort of the next rung down in The Guardian, and watching them grow and mentoring them to the extent that I can and giving them confidence and telling them what I have learnt is really, really rewarding. And you can sort of see them take those steps and you can see them learning about managing people and learning about how to deal with, you know, conflict, difficult conversations. You can see them having the confidence to execute their ideas. And I just, I love that. I absolutely love that. When you talk about leadership, what have you learnt through that challenge? And not just about being a good leader, but also what you've learned about yourself. Hmm. About myself, I often assume knowledge 
I often go into a situation and I've done my homework and I've thought it all through and I know where we want to get to and it's obvious to me. And that's not always a good way to go into a conversation because other people might have actually gone through that process but come to a different conclusion or maybe they haven't gone through that process. It's important to slow up and not assume knowledge. I guess the same thing probably goes in professional interpersonal relationships that I sometimes assume things that I should check, that I should voice, that I should articulate. I do think in general that's sort of my weakness. I kind of go at a million miles an hour and I sometimes need to slow up in order to take people with me, explain what I'm doing, listen to other ideas. I just need to slow up a bit, and I think I've learnt to do that. This might be a bit tangential, but when I talk to a lot of other business leaders, they really struggle with managing their older workforce and their younger workforce. They think there's a different set of expectations with younger staff. Are you noticing that at all? To an extent, yes, and it's not entirely unreasonable. So until this most recent expansion, which was very significant, the Guardian was quite a flat structure. Young people would come in and they'd be super idealistic and very excited to work for the Guardian, and then they would not unreasonably think, what's next for me? And I couldn't answer that question because the structure was so flat. There was no obvious you know, stepping stones to something. We've got better stepping stones now because we've grown a lot, but we also tried, and this was pre-pandemic, to just do internal sort of learning opportunities like lunch and learns and whatever we could to give people a sense that they were learning new things, they were doing new things, they weren't stuck in a rut in a job that they sort of felt like that they had mastered. I think people of my generation accepted a lot of things in a lot of aspects of work, which probably weren't healthy. So lots of overtime. And younger workers don't necessarily accept that and nor should they, nor should they. So we, I do not expect anyone to work unpaid overtime and it would be illegal to, it's not the culture, but it certainly was the culture when I was younger. I mean, hours and hours and hours of it, you know, you wouldn't think about pushing back on that. So that's a change and it's, I think it's a change for the better. Journalism's still challenged across so many fronts and, you know, I often see on all the social media platforms, you know, why is there a paywall? Why do we need to pay for good journalism? You must come up against that a lot. Now, you know, you can get The Guardian for free. You encourage people to subscribe. But what's your pitch to people generally when they say something like that to you? Well, I think the value of journalism, the value of what we do when it's done well, I feel should be pretty evident at the moment. You know, through a pandemic, the value of factual, quick factual information was obvious through natural disasters. The Royal Commission for Aged Care. So many things. And it's hard to do that. It costs money to do that. So whether you do it through a subscription to us voluntarily or a subscription to another newspaper, which you have to do to actually access their content, whichever way, you need to pay for it because otherwise we can't do it. And I hope, I hope and I think that readers get that. How do you describe The Guardian in terms of its offerings in the media landscape? What's your point of difference? We have a really clear purpose. We are progressive. 
that doesn't mean that we're left-wing. It means that we have a view that the world could and should be better. We are unashamedly interested in reporting very deeply on social justice issues and inequality issues, on the environment, on political accountability, on Indigenous affairs. And because we don't have shareholders, because we don't have anybody else sort of influencing what we do, I set those directions and they're part of the strategy globally and we can pursue them. I guess the point of difference from some publications is we don't have to chase after clicks. We want audience, but the audience comes for what we do. The audience understands our purpose. But look, when it comes to big stories, obviously they kind of present themselves. They're a no-brainer. But to keep the clicks coming, you know, and you've got to justify your bottom lines, you have to get the balance right. But sometimes people readers surprise you. A few years ago, I really wanted to try and change the narrative of the welfare debate. I felt like it was far too often presented as a, through the prism of, you know, dull bludgers, welfare recipients who were just, you know, on the take, who didn't really deserve benefits. And that seemed to me to be a really bad prism. I mean, of course, there are always people who do the wrong thing. But by and large, it seemed to be a really unfair way of characterising that debate. So I wanted to think about how we could flip the debate in a way. And we commissioned a series called Life on the Breadline, where we found there was seven or eight people living below the poverty line, most of them living on some form of benefit, who would write a diary for us about their life. When we commissioned it, I thought, this is going to be important. I really want to do this. It probably won't get that well read. Actually, those pieces were the best read pieces on our site pretty much every time. People were really, really interested in it. And I think it did succeed in flipping the debate. They often made me cry in the bus on the way to work. They were really moving, affecting descriptions of what it was like to live at that time on $40 a day or whatever unemployment benefits were and the, the daily predicaments that that would present people. And so I wouldn't, yes, the easiest way to get clicks is, you know, cheap clicks, but oftentimes some copy that you would think wouldn't be so popular actually turns out to be. So the readers constantly surprise you? Mm-hmm, they do. You still have to make the headline work, though, to get that SEO right. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself constantly questioning how far you go in terms of getting that headline right, capturing the reader's attention from the get-go? So I think we have much more conservative, cautious rules and norms about headline writing than a lot of publications. We don't write headlines that pose a question and don't answer it, for instance, which many publications do. Those rules and norms are guardian-wide. And, you know, sure, if we were to write the, and you'll never guess what happened next headline, maybe more people would click. But you've also got to keep faith with readers who come to you for a certain reason. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way headlines are at the moment. You've been in the game for 30-plus years. Here we are in 2022. It's a federal election cycle, but we're still seeing the same issues. Do you think much has changed? Do you mean in terms of how politics is played or in terms of how we report it? Oh, both really. I think that certainly from when we started in the press gallery, it has been quite hollowed out. I think I'm not critical of the press gallery. I think there are a lot of journalists there who do a very good job. But when I started in the press gallery, most of the bureaus would have subject specialist areas across policy areas. You'd have an environment specialist and an Indigenous affairs specialist and a couple of economics writers and, you know, like 
you would have people who really knew policy and those rounds people would be able to really delve into policy announcements during an election campaign. You would have people on the campaign trail, on the buses, they would be full. And it would be a worthwhile exercise because you'd get quite a lot of time both informally and in on the record press conferences with political leaders and advisors on the buses. Now, most bureaus are too small to have really specialised people. You have some specialists in, say, foreign policy and economics, but you really have to have generalists after that. So the level of deep policy scrutiny is a bit less. We haven't sent anyone on the buses ever, really, since The Guardian started. And even now, when we've grown quite big, we won't be, nor certainly not for most of the campaign, because you just spend your time waiting around for a press opportunity where three people get to answer a question. There's very little contact. There's very little insight. So you have to think about how to cover an election in a different way. I think we're going to try and do a lot more grassroots reporting in electorates, because As the electorate becomes a bit more disengaged, a little less rusted on to political parties, to actually have your finger on the pulse of what's happening, you really need to get off that campaign trail and away from this travelling circus and talk to people. One of my regrets in the last election is that when we did that, the reporters would come back and say, I don't really like Bill Shorten, you know. And I go, yeah, 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 but look at the polls, you know. Like, it's, I mean, we should have listened to them. They were telling us that out there on the ground, the feedback was very ordinary. And so I guess this time the difference will be we'll do more of it and we'll, we'll listen to them more. We've also changed the way that we report on polling since last time as well. So I think a lot has changed about how we report on election campaigns and I think they're much harder. The other thing, of course, is that the advertising used to be in flyers, in letterboxes or on billboards, and now it's all targeted online advertising. So it's also a real task to follow the messages that the political parties are sending out to voters, even to just see them and know how that campaign is. Just to see it is a, is a really big task. We're also trying to go have a system to try to follow what you know might come out after the election as pork barrelling, like all those discretionary funds that just get doled out in electorate-specific announceables with the candidate and whatever in a big, you know, big fat check. We want to try and follow that in real time because, you know, it would have been good to know during the last campaign when the car parks were being announced or sports rorts or whatever, not only for those electorates, but for all the electorates that are safe and aren't getting anything, you know, they deserve to know as well. So we want to try and follow that. Then there's the whole question of misinformation and disinformation. You have to try and keep eyes on that. So It's become a lot less straightforward and a lot more complicated an enterprise than it was when we started out, Sandra. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of complication, I mean, you've got to be across so many issues. The diversity of topics, you know, it's global warming, the vaccination debate, cancel culture, Me Too, gender issues. How do you navigate the minefield of issues? How do you stay across it? It's one of the things I actually find frustrating about my job now is that I have to be across everything so I can't read as deeply into many things as much as I would have in my old job when I was political editor and I was sort of doing policy issues. And, you know, deep at heart, I'm a policy wonk. Like that's what I love the best. That's what I really love doing the best. So I do find that a bit frustrating. And one of my great joys is when I get a few spare hours on the weekend and I can actually read the deep features and read international publications and do that more. But on a daily basis, I've just got to keep across it enough that I can see where we need to go, what what I need to commission, what we need for the weekend. I just have to have enough of a 
an overview to steer the ship. And if I follow my natural inclination to dive deep down into something that I'm super interested in, I'll lose sight of all the rest of it. And that is a little bit frustrating. Well, for a long time, you were the champion of the environment and I guess climate change. Did it find you or did you find it? Um, a bit of both. So back when we started out, the rounds most often assigned to women were the environment and Indigenous affairs. I remember looking back on my career and thinking how hilarious it was that I was assigned the environment right before that election when Graham Richardson was environment minister and it became sort of an election deciding issue and Indigenous Affairs right before the Mabo decision. And both of those issues were just fascinating to me because it's what I love the most is complicated policy meets complicated politics. Like that's the thing that I find the most interesting. So they were like two fantastic things to follow. And on the environment, like I covered many of the international environmental meetings and I find that whole idea incredibly interesting, how you can kind of solve something when you need cooperation from around the world. I found the domestic policy debate interesting and also just so incredibly frustrating. Like it's not that hard a policy issue. If you just swept all the politics away, we could have had a far more sensible environmental policy, a climate policy, without really any significant impacts on, you know, people's daily lives or what they pay for electricity bills. Like we managed to make it into a far more difficult problem than it needed to be by turning it into a culture war. And I guess I sort of dug in on the side of facts. I <laughs> just dug in on the side of facts. I couldn't let go the idea that something could be so misrepresented and so messed up when factual policy making was just not that hard. So was it business that got in the way? Because here we are in 2022 and it's still a significant issue with the lobbyists playing at front and centre. I think business got in the way for a while and then it became a kind of culture war issue and an article of faith with some politicians, regardless of fact, regardless of, you know, legitimate differences in policy approaches, it became something completely sort of separated from the facts. And in fact, business has moved on, long since moved on and is, is long since been advocating for some sort of sensible policy, it's the politicians that haven't quite caught up yet. You worked in one of the most toxic workplaces for more than three decades. We've seen what's happened with Brittany and, and of course, all the Julia Banks, Grace Tame, all of the issues that have swirled in the last 12 to 18 months. Do you look back at that time and remember moments when the toxicity was palpable for you? Why the hell did we put up with it? I don't know. Why did we put up with it? Thank God this generation has stood up and said, nah, it's not good enough. I look back and think at that time, I would have certainly felt able to complain or report a physical assault, but innumerable examples of sexual harassment and inappropriate behaviour, I just saw as my job to work around, get around, laugh off, shove aside, deal with. It didn't dawn on me that you could report that kind of thing. It just seemed like something you had to kind of figure out how to cope with. Why the hell did we put up with it? 
Look, I remember for a long period of time I was bullied by a colleague and I've never really spoken about it that much in public, but the point I'm making is at the time the word bullying in the workplace didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I just managed my way through it so that I could get out the other side. I can remember when new women came into the gallery giving them a list of MPs where it was very ill-advised to either go to dinner with them alone or go to their offices alone. It was just advice you gave to other women. I just, I'm so pleased that the next generation have done better at this than we did. Well, the Liberal Party still, from a perception perspective, have an issue with women. They still struggle with elevating more women. Why do you think that is for the coalition? Um, because they have this kind of ideological opposition to quotas and quotas is what made the difference for the Labor Party. I was at that Labor Party conference in Hobart where the affirmative action resolution went through and there were purple streamers and balloons and whatever else. But it took decades for it to actually have an effect. And, you know, I do, I do bristle a little bit at the idea that, you know, when you have more women in the room, everything's suddenly nicer, you know, a bit. But if you've got more women in the room, women's issues are taken more seriously and can't be ignored. And I think there are some really great women in the Liberal Party and there's a lot of great women who've left the Liberal Party and, or decided not to continue their political careers. But um, I suppose the problem is they need a critical mass of them. They need sufficient numbers of them to really make change. Now, if they think that that can happen through their current policy settings and processes, Terrific, absolutely terrific. All I can say from what I've seen is even with affirmative action quotas, it took the Labor Party a really long time. So a lot of women I talk to still bristle at the concept of a quota. I personally believe in them because you can't be what you can't see and those women that get elevated to those jobs through the quota system still have to have the qualifications to get it. I mean, it's not a gift, an unworthy, undeserving gift. What's your argument when people say, nah, quotas, I don't, I don't want to receive the elevation and the job if I just make up the numbers? I would say that if they thought that they were only getting the job to make up the numbers, that's a completely legitimate concern. But if they thought that they were qualified for the job and deserved the job, then the quota was simply a way of removing the institutional and structural bias that was standing in their way and they should say thank you very much and go do the job. What do you think is the future of journalism? Because you're straddling that old hard copy. You've got the surge in social media. You have to straddle that divide. It's interesting from my perspective because we've been building something from the bottom up with none of the legacy products. So we never had a newspaper, never had to worry about it. That was a liberation. Like I can remember sitting in the press gallery and I'd made every phone call I could think of. I'd found out every fact I could think of. I'd written it. And the editor would say, now, can you turn something around for the morning paper? I'm like, well, what, you know, like it's eight o'clock at night. What's going to happen now? But I would have to find a way to repackage it for the paper. Not having that is a liberation. News does move faster and we've got to think of devices to do that. So live blogging has become, you know, I mean, we, we didn't start it, but I think we did a lot more of it earlier in Australia than a lot of other publications. And it's a way of sopping up the fast news as a day happens, which leaves you time for other people to go and make calls and take more time over other stories. I've just done a really big audiovisual expansion because the truth is a lot of younger news consumers want to get their news through audio and video. And that's just the truth of it. And we've got to move with those times. 
I'm about to launch state news containers. So we, you know, we built The Guardian as a national platform. And people kind of think that the internet is endless. You know, you must have endless space when you're not confined to a newspaper. But you don't actually. You've got a set number of slots on your front page and not many people go to the sort of pages behind there. And that made it really hard to cover state news because, you know, what's happening in one state might not be of interest somewhere else. So we're going to do like geolocated containers in the three eastern states in the first instance, which you only see in that state as a way into state news. Because if we've learned one thing through pandemic and, you know, recent events, it says you really need to cover state news. We've just launched a rural network to try and sort of have some eyes on regional Australia. I guess the problem is with the resources that media companies have now, even the biggest ones, trying to do uh, deep and well-researched across-the-board coverage becomes harder and harder and you have to think of different models and different ways to go about it. And I think it's going to keep evolving. You have to be on social media and all journalists are on Twitter. What platforms is The Guardian on and why? So as part of the audiovisual expansion was also an off-platform expansion. So we are now very active on Instagram and we've also just started to do some work on TikTok because we think that's where we're going to find new readers who won't hear from us in other ways, who might not see us on the other social media feeds. Twitter is a very small driver of traffic. So you know, I'm on Twitter, I tweet stories. There's a sort of a Twitter ecosystem. I do find out things on Twitter. I do see information on Twitter. It can be really useful. It can also be judgmental and toxic and difficult. Our Instagram followers have increased really substantially. We're doing a lot more on YouTube now. And I do think that's an area where we need to expand a lot. I think a lot of young news consumers are going to be consuming news and explainers on YouTube. For those who don't understand why YouTube is so attractive now, it's the opportunity to monetize and there's no global geoblock. So you can watch YouTube anywhere in the world. Whereas, you know, if you're on Facebook and other platforms, you're blocked. Also, it's quite difficult to be successful on Facebook if you don't have comments on and allow a discussion. But after the Vola judgment, that opens up a really big legal risk. So there's, you know, that's actually really constrained our use of Facebook. We do post on Facebook, but we limit comments. We turn comments off at the moment because after the Vola judgment, basically you can be sued for any, anything that anyone writes in your comment stream, even on a post that you posted two years ago. There's no possible way of moderating all of those comments. You just can't do it. So it's a really massive legal risk. So I think a lot of publications have really pulled back on how they use Facebook because if you haven't got comments open, then the algorithm devalues you and you don't get you know, your stories don't get shared much or seen much. So yeah, Facebook's tricky, but still important. I'm really quite interested in watching what happens on Instagram and also on TikTok. There's a young reporter in my team who asked, you know, can I do some TikToks in my spare time? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, make sure we sign them off. And she's, she's just this massive success. She did a TikTok about Afghanistan that was viewed like 4.5 million times and she was reshared by Edward Snowden. Like she's just phenomenal at it. So shortly I'm just going to let her just do that because there's a whole world of news consumers out there that are seeing Guardian journalism for the first time. I know when my teenage daughter came in to me, said, Mum, I just saw one of your team on TikTok. And I thought, okay, well, it's working. Then <laughs> It was <laughs> penetrated through to the 16-year-old TikTok user. It's working. 
Well, look, your world's consumed by journalism and, and rightly so, given the job you've got. And I, I hope a lot of our listeners have more of an insight, not so much just into The Guardian, but into journalism in general. But who's Lenore Taylor outside of being the editor of The Guardian? I mean, you're married to a journalist, got two kids. Three kids. Three kids. I have a stepdaughter who has two children, so I'm a grandma. Wow. That's a lot of fun. I mean, that's really a lot of fun. And I get to start the Women's Weekly Cookbook right from the beginning again. It's so great, the birthday cake cookbook. I have some very close and dear friends who I really like to go walking with on the weekend. I like reading and hiking and hanging out with my family. So your best switch-off tool is? Walk the dogs down to the beach. Two dogs, throw the ball, everything's okay. You're married to a journalist. So when do you switch off? Like how do you both stop talking the business and just be everyday Australians? My husband, Paul Daly, was a daily journalist, now is a columnist in The Guardian. He was doing that before I became editor and is still doing that. But mostly now he spends his time writing books. So it's a little easier than it was early in our relationship when we were both in the press gallery. I think the most tricky time was when he was working for a Sunday newspaper. So for people not in the trade, you know, Sunday newspaper reporters had to find a story during the week and then sit on it and hope nobody else would write it until they published it on a Sunday. And I was working for a daily newspaper. So there were weeks when I knew he was onto something and he, you know, like it was much more tricky now. It's much easier now that he's got a different pace to his professional life and spends a lot of his time writing novels and books and longer form pieces. It's easier for us to (laughs) not compete. (laughs) Advice to young journalists, for example, would you encourage your own children to follow your paths? Um, I tell my children to do what they dream of. I wouldn't tell them not to, but if they decided they did want to, I would advise them strongly to get more strings to their bow. So to have a specialty, so have a sort of a subject area. It might be a law degree or a medical degree or physiotherapy, whatever. And also to have expertise in other things like data, other, other methods of storytelling, because we can't sit here and, you know, predict perfectly where the profession is going to go. But storytelling is going to change. And I think you would need to be able to do more than craft a perfect, you know, pyramid-shaped news story to know that you'd be fine for the next 40 years. I've loved having you here, Lenore. Thanks for sharing your time and insights about what it's like to be Lenore Taylor, a superstar in the Australian journalism scene. We congratulate you and wish you all the very best. Thanks for spending some time with us here at Short Black. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. tired to clean your floors after playtime forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over let eufy x10 pro omni help powerful 8000 pa suction removes debris and mop master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease save time and keep your floors cleaner want to know more go to eufy.com that's eufy.com and discover x10 pro omni the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only 799 dollars